Hello, this is Greg Perry, the historic preservationist. This episode, we will delve into mahogany. In 1748, Per Kalm, a protege for the famous Swedish botanist Carl Linsenis, embarked on a three-year tour of North America to identify valuable trees that might thrive in Chile, Scandinavia. Traveling from the eastern seaboard to the Appalachian frontier, he was deeply impressed with the land's vast forest, as well as the prodigious quantities of high-quality timber its inhabitants consumed and exported. Yet after visiting the well-furnished homes of many people along the way, including such luminaries as Benjamin Franklin in Philadelphia and Codwalder Colden in New York, he reported that colonial Americans exchanged their native timber for true mahogany, which grows in Jamaica where it is at present almost all cut down. Most people in British North America in the mid-18th century would have found the first half of his statement at least unsurpassing. If he had extended his journey farther, Calm would have found that the use of this imported tropical hardwood was widespread throughout the colonies. Hard-driving merchants and ship captains in New England, prosperous farmers, and minor gentry in the mid-Atlantic, debt-ridden Virginia planters and aristocratic Carolina rice growers all owned and often prominently displayed mahogany furnishings. Although these objects might differ in appearance, reflecting stylistic and regional preferences, distinctive vernacular traditions and local craft practices, changing fashions, and quirks of personal taste. The use of mahogany as a primary wood was an important commodity. Rare and exotic, only a few decades earlier, mahogany, while still a luxury commodity, was no longer novel or exclusive to the wealthy few. More middling Americans now also sought out this favored wood to add a touch of refinement to their modest homes. If only a few chairs, a small table, or a tea caddy, even Americans who do not, did not own any mahogany were likely familiar with it from the neighbors' houses, cabinet-making workshops, stores, churches, the courthouse, or even the local tavern. If you had accumulated come on one of his evening social calls, perhaps to a leading Philadelphia family, you would have observed an impressive array of mahogany furniture. Imagine entering a brightly painted parlor with a tall high chest, towers against the far wall on elegant curved legs, the swirling grain of its facade and shiny brass handles and escutcheons gleam in the candlelight. Along the opposite wall stands a sofa, its red silky upholstery set off by its dark brown mahogany frame. Before the marble fireplace, a pair of mahogany armchairs, clamoring with carved vines and flowers, flanked with a round tea table and a pie-crust edge. In adjacent rooms, you glimpse still more mahogany, a looking-glass topped with a gilded phoenix, a pair of card tables, a delicate sewing table, perhaps a grand desk and bookcase, or a stately grandfather clock. The unseen private chambers likely contain mahogany as well, four-poster beds, washstands, dressing tables, maybe an armoire, arranged alongside planar maple and pine objects. In the formal dining room, you find a veritable showroom of mahogany furniture. 
The sideboard looms like a battleship, laden with sparkling glasses, silver candlesticks, and Chinese porcelain terrines and platters. Matching knife boxes displayed ivory-handled cutlery, and a lead-lined cellaret contains bottles of fine French wine in the middle of the room. Centered under a crystal chandelier and surrounded by a dozen matching chairs stands the pièce de résistance, a 12-foot mahogany dining table. When you are seated at the table, however, its gorgeous expanse of wood remains concealed until just before the dessert course. When at last the servants ceremoniously remove the white damask cloth, its smooth, polished surface is revealed, allowing everyone at the table to admire their shimmering reflections within its luxurious depths. Amidst such abundance, most colonial Americans would have scoffed at the second half of Calm's remark about Mahogany's imminent depletion in Jamaica. Since the wharves of American seaports heaved with imported mahogany logs, and cabinet-making shops regularly turned out all manner of mahogany creations for sale to anyone who could afford them. His claim, however, was largely accurate. The accessible trees were indeed rapidly disappearing on Jamaica, the main mahogany supplier to England and colonial America since its introduction in the 1720s. This unfortunate reality gave rise to an ongoing search for the two commercially harvested species of New World mahogany, a search that eventually extended throughout their native ranges from the Northern Caribbean to Central and South America and beyond. In the face of rising consumer demand, the drive to find, access, and control mahogany sources intensified over the course of the 18th century, giving rise to fierce competition and violent conflicts over remaining supplies. It also contributed to increased exploitation of slave labor and widespread deforestation. In the West Indies, where mahogany often was felled in the process of clearing land for plantation agriculture, its extraction coincided with the very vanguard of European colonial expansion. Moreover, as the search for mahogany heated up, it exacerbated interpersonal and border intertemperamental tensions over access to land, labor, and natural resources. Although the Anglo-American and British context in which mahogany was used are the main focus of this work, Mahogany was also exported to France, Spain, Denmark, and the Netherlands from their respective West Indian colonies, as well as other destinations in Europe. The historical significance of mahogany and the very substance of the material itself cannot be fully understood apart from the living trees from whence it came and the contemptuous human circumstances surrounding its production. The health, maturity, growth patterns, and particular species of the mahogany trees felled at any given point in time dictated the character of wood available to consumers. As the largest, healthiest trees with the best reproductive capability were systematically cut down, those harvested substantially became increasingly unpredictable and inconsistent in size and quality.
which directly impacted the international mahogany market. Most significantly, what trees were felled, as well as how, where, and by whom, was inextricably linked with changing social, political, economic, and environmental conditions within their native ranges. Although not always aware of these underlying causes, consumers experimented their, their effects directed and indirectly as they were forced to redefine their conceptions of mahogany and recalibrate their expectations in the face of market fluctuations and deteriorating woodstocks. In 1780, even the intrepid Benjamin Franklin expressed confusion about mahogany, noting there is a great deal of difference in the woods that go under the name. Over time, mahogany depletion and the ensuing search to find new sources fundamentally reshaped how it was valued, used, and perceived. This direct correlation, however, has not always been evident, then, now, to those who appreciate the sublime but disembodied material. Known colloquially in English by the name likely derived from the Uban Oragano, since slaves purportedly found it reminiscent of an African tree, the vast majority of New World mahogany consumed in the 18th century and early 19th centuries was one of the two species of the genus Swansita of the Medicae family, shortleaf and West Indian mahogany and big-leaf Honduran mahogany. The native range of the former was limited to central North Caribbean, including the tip of Florida, Jamaica, Cuba, and Bahamas, Hispania, and Haiti and the Dominican Republic, and the smaller surrounding islands of the northern Antilles. Given the relatively small sizes of these land masses, its geographical scope was quite circumscribed. The native range of the Honduran species, by contrast, was vast, encompassing parts of Central and South America, from southern Mexico to the Amazon. Since this was Spanish territory for most of the 18th century, however, British woodcutters were officially restricted to limited areas, defined by international treaties in the Bay of Honduras, now Belize. They also cut mahogany along the Mosquito Shore, now Nicaragua and Honduras, with cooperation from the indigenous Indians, who resisted Spanish claims of sovereignty. A third species of New World mahogany, indigenous to the Pacific, Pacific coast and smaller in size, was not exported to any significant extent. Logging mahogany trees was especially challenging and labor-intensive because of their highly dispersed growth habit. In a healthy tropical forest environment, the species typically avoid crowding each other by growing singly or in small clusters scattered across vast acres. With an average density of one tree or two per half acres in clusters of up to 20 trees per acre, intermingling with an average of 40 to 60 other tree species. In addition, the trees which average 80 to 100 feet tall, with diameters of 4 to 12 feet, are slow-growing and do not easily regenerate once virgin forest is felled. In an undisturbed forest setting, parent trees disperse their seeds seasonally, 
resulting in large numbers of seedlings, most of which eventually die as they are shaded out by the competing flora. But if a seedling receives adequate water and a strong infusion of light at the right moment to trigger continued growth, such as caused by the fall of a neighboring tree, it will grow rapidly into a tall, skinny juvenile, shooting upward until it reaches the height of the surrounding canopy. After the initial spurt, however, its growth slows considerably and its energy is redirected into developing outstretched crowning branches and expanding the girth of its trunk. It takes many years for a tree to reach maturity, much less achieve its full potential size. The age of a mahogany tree, not evident in annual growth rings, is usually estimated based on the diameter of the trunk. A tree with a diameter of six feet, for example, is probably several hundred years old. Mahogany reproduction is also believed to be facilitated by such cataclysmic events such as hurricanes and fires that periodically create large rifts in the forest canopy. In a typical scenario, high winds or raging flames decimate competing tree species leaving standing only the largest mahogany trees, which are produced by their sturdy, buttressed trunks and thick, fire-resistance bark. Taking advantage of this disruption, these trees maximize their reproductive capability by scattering their seeds in the natural clearing. Bathed in nurturing sunlight, the seeds take root and begin to sprout. This Survival strategy allows their progeny to gain a foothold before faster-growing trees have a chance to catch up and engulf them. The mahogany tree that grows back in a given area after such an event are all about the same age and size. In the 18th century and early 19th centuries, mahogany logging was largely an extractive industry that relied on two main modes of production, clear-cutting and selective cutting. Analogous to strip mining, clear-cutting entailed removing all the trees across a wide area to eradicate whole forests, usually as the precursor to plantation agriculture. On many West Indian islands, mahogany-rich forests competed unfavorably for space on what proved to be prime sugar-growing lands, whereas natural cataclysms similarly felled many trees at once, Usually enough mature individuals were left standing that the forest could eventually recover with its original diversity and vigor intact. On man-made clear cuts, however, the land denoted of trees and bereft of proper protection of heavy rains and the scorching sun eroded and lost most of its fertility. While tender mahogany saplings died of exposure, Secondary forests might eventually spring up in the wake of clear-cutting. But mahogany usually did not revive, especially not at all if the mature seed-bearing trees had been removed. Selective cutting singled out only the mahogany trees from a given area, leaving behind less desirable species. While less destructive to the forest as a whole, this method still required that miles of logging roads be cut through the forest to reach each mahogany tree. Since the largest, healthiest mahogany trees were removed first, 
Their reproductive cycles were similarly disrupted and remaining seedlings were crowded out by faster growing species. In the wake of either logging method, the relatively slow growing, ecologically complex mahogany seldom recovered after such man-made disruptions. Consequently, as once abundant mahogany became rare in many places in the mid to late 18th century, the realization that mahogany supplies were finite encouraged a Wild West mentality throughout the Circum-Caribbean as people hastened to seize a one-time bounty. While many historians have investigated the commodification of tropical flora from sugar, tobacco, chocolate, to coffee, rubber, and bananas. Mahogany offers a very different case study. For although its initial introduction and popularization were similar to that of other tropical commodities, its long-term history flowed and followed a very different trajectory because of three key factors. Its limited availability, its durability, and its increasing scarcity. These same characteristics were shared with other now endangered species that were similarly commodified, such as elephants for their ivory tusks and sea turtles for their mottled shells, but in relatively smaller quantities. Slow-growing mahogany proved difficult to raise in captivity, so to speak, its life cycle so intimately intertwined within the larger rainforest ecology was not easily replicated under artificial conditions, and efforts to cultivate mahogany trees on plantations within their native Atlantic ranges were of limited success during the colonial period. Mahogany, therefore, provides an important counterexample to the more general plantation model of a commodification of nature in which rare species and trees and plants were transformed into highly regimented, quality-controlled, mass-produced agricultural products. Mahogany continued to be taken almost exclusively from the wild and initially only from within the prescribed limits of its natural propagation. Until significant breakthroughs in understanding its ecology and the relationship to its tropical environment were made in the 20th century. Mahogany was, for all intents and purposes, a unrenewable resource. Mahogany's durability also set it apart from other more ephemeral, if more addictive, plantation-grown commodities such as sugar, tea, coffee, and tobacco. Whereas these tropical staples became increasingly accessible to more people, and in ever greater quantities, those who partook of them had little to do for how beyond their immediate gratification. Once these products were inhibited or used, nothing was left except, perhaps briefly, some unburned calories, an acid aftertaste, or a cloud of smoke. Mahogany, on the other hand, was converted into substantial, long-lasting material artifacts, physical things that people gradually imbued with a range of cultural connotations that held shared meanings. Eventually, as abolition sentiments advanced in England and North America, 
some consumers drew a moral distinction between mahogany's solid substance and the ephemeral character of most tropical productives. Even though all were slave-produced commodities, in 1807, in a critique of West Indian sugar planters who were demanding protectionist policies because of their produce so enriched the British Empire. William Spence argued that, to the contrary, sugar was so transient, so fugitive, that it offered little benefit to anyone. If only, he noted, consumers would invest in goods as durable as the mahogany which is imported from Jamaica. They would enjoy long-term value for years, perhaps for half a century, and obtain by selling them at least a portion of their original cost. But what have the consumers of rum and sugar to show for the tens and millions of these luxuries which now are consumed every year? Nothing. Mahogany objects, on the other hand, tend to retain or even gain economic, sentimental, and historical value over time. While the particular historical content of Mahogany's introduction in colonial America during the early 18th century had much to do with its positive reception, people's appreciation for the material and its enduring cultural significance were and are predicated foremost on its physical and aesthetic properties that made it the extraordinarily durable, versatile, and attractive wood well suited for a wide range of applications. Although the separate species of the mahogany trees are readily differentiated based on their external appearances. Some of these grow taller and wider and have longer and rounder leaves than other mahogany trees. Their close heredity is evident in cellular structures so similar that even 21st century wood identification experts armed with high-powered microscopes cannot definitively distinguish them just on wood samples alone. Moreover, both species share important characteristics, and as tropical hardwoods are categorically different in a number of significant ways from hardwood trees of more temperate regions. Most North American and European hardwoods, for example, have clearly visible seasonal bands of growth, wider or narrower depending on annual rainfalls or growing conditions such that a tree's age can easily be estimated by counting the resulting rings on a cross-section of the trunk. Since the tropics have a continuous growing season, however, mahogany trees have especially dense, tightly packed growth rings that are not readily discernible to the naked eye in in the fibers of their trunks or branches. Indeed, Europeans were often confronted and confounded by their inability to access the age of the seemingly ancient mahogany trees they encountered. Like other tropical hardwoods, mahogany tends to have especially solid, fine-grained wood and is extremely hard, heavy and strong, and very durable. Whereas all woods swell or shrink with age and humidity due to their permeable cell structures, its density makes it more stable than most other woods, as well as warp-resistant and relatively impervious to insect damage. Fully mature mahogany trees, although seldom found today, can also retain gargantuan sizes, 
exceeding all European and, and North American species, with the exception of the tulip trees and the sequoias. Those initially harvested during the colonial period yielded boards of extraordinary widths. The strength, insect resistance, and large sizes of mahogany, especially the larger Honduran species, made it a preferred material for shipbuilding, construction, and architectural woodwork. Shipwrights found that the density largely prevented problems with worms and dry rot, that they shortened the longevity of ocean-going vessels. Its stability made it well-suited for making musical instruments, such as violins and guitars, and the housings of delicate scientific instruments. Some old masters even painted on panels of mahogany when they could get their hands on it, as Rembrandt did in his 1634 self-portrait. Cabinet makers and carvers deemed it excellent as well for furniture making, lending itself especially to well to the art and mystery of their crafts. As long as large trees were available, some tabletops were fabricated out of a single mahogany slab, making for a uniform, stable surface that maintained the problems of warping, shrinking, and cracking that could occur when similar boards had been pieced together. Mahogany was all so strong that cabinet makers in some regions dispensed with traditional structural reinforcements, such as chair stretchers. Solid mahogany, however, was quite heavy, a disadvantage for card tables, chairs, and the like that were routinely moved around in late 18th century to shift, and then this thus shifted to veneers, which solved that problem by sheathing lighter woods in a thin mahogany layer. At the same time, mahogany also offered enormous aesthetic potential that opened up new artistic possibilities for the 18th century artisans because both species came in a wide range of colors, textures, and densities, variables determined by the unique situation and growing conditions of particular mahogany stands or even of individual trees. Myriad factors such as patterns and rainfall, soil conditions, light levels, exposure, proximity to other trees or environmental stresses affected a tree's physiology, which translated directly into the quality and size and character and ultimately the value of its resulting timber. In other words, each tree's autobiography was written in the grain of its body with seemingly infinite variations. Depending on the particular chemical composition of the soil, for example, its wood might develop a surprisingly array of colors from dark to light brown, deep maroon to reddish orange, greenish yellow to golden blonde. If a mahogany tree of either species took root in a sunny, well-watered, fertile spot and grew up unimpeded, it would generally develop even-grained, slightly porous, bland wood composed of an of an open pore network. Net-like cellular structures, if that same tree started life instead on rocky, dry soil, crowded by other trees, or clinging to a steep mountainside. It would grow more slowly and gnarly, resulting in harder, denser wood, possibly with more vivid color and a tighter, more closed cellular structure. In addition, wherever the tree twisted, bent, or branched, such as around its 
buttressed roots at the crotch of its trunk, the stresses on the wood fibers caused irregularities and malformations in the grain, resulting in patterns of models, swirls, whorls, feathering, and other distinctive figures, such as the mahogany tree that grew in the former conditions. It gained a reputation for lighter, spongier, plainer wood that was long regarded as inferior for cabinet making. A negative perception that became less pronounced as availability of the preferred West Indian species declined. Nevertheless, in the hands of a skilled woodworker, the diverse physical characteristics of both species could be manipulated to achieve a remarkable array of visual and tactile effects. The elaborate growth patterns were only fully revealed, for example, when the wood was cut in particular ways and required judgment and skill acquired through the long experience. Dense mahogany without a figured grain proved to be a superior carving wood from which carvers coaxed delicate ornaments impossible to accomplish in a less sturdy wood. Achieving a level of crispness, clarity, swooping articulation, and deep surface contrast that, in the best work, imparted to the inner wood a stimulating sense of movement and vigor. Carver's intricate designs, often embellished with twining tendrils, shells, blossoms, and characteristics of the sophisticated Rococo and chinoiserie styles that became fashionable during the mid-18th century, introduced a new dimension of stylized nature to the parlors and dining rooms of colonial America. Adding to Mahogany's appeal, that was, when the rough wood was finished unpolished, it resulted in a satiny smooth texture with a solid reflective surface. Grain patterns and some figured mahogany were reminiscent of the then-fashionable moire silks that were specially woven and passed between iron rollers, rollers to create iridescent effects. Mahogany's reflective, chameleon-like aspect continued to fascinate people long thereafter. In 1853, the cabinetmaker's assistant noted, noted its beauty varied as the observer alters his position the lights and shades dissolving into and alternating with each other. This illusion of change defines the imitation of the painter and is unconsciously one of the chief attractions which mahogany furniture presents. Thanks to the seemingly infinite diversity of mahogany, each project made from it was to some degree unique and an enduring legacy of a once-living tree. Satisfying the British Empire's appetite for mahogany required a veritable army of people spread out across the Atlantic Hemisphere, enslaved Africans, itinerant woodcarvers and cutters, colonists and planters in the West Indies and Central America, ship captains, sailors, and stevedores, as well as merchants, cabinet makers, and laborers in England, and its northern colonies. In the rainforest, workers sought out and felled each huge tree, extracted the massive trunks laboriously, and hauled them to the closest waterway to be floated to the coast and landing in the waiting ships. Across the ocean, other workers unloaded, sorted, graded, and measured, and sawed up the raw wood 
while others transformed it into all kinds of objects, tables, chairs, desks, etc., that furniture buyers conveyed to their homes. All of these people experienced mahogany as a part of their material surroundings, but in very different contexts. Enslaved Africans in the West Indies and Central America, as well as Indians and other indigenous peoples, were also drawn into the search for mahogany, playing integral roles in finding and harvesting forest resources, and in some cases serving as important brokers of environmental information. They thus contributed to investing part of the natural world with exchange value, transforming it into a commodity and activating its economic potential in the Atlantic marketplace. By parlaying geographical and ethnobotanical knowledge to serve their own strategic purposes, they also gained some negotiating power within the otherwise exploitative labor system, beginning as early in the mid-18th century in some areas. However, their lives were also significantly impacted by the negative effects of unbridled woodcutting and ensuing geopolitical and economic crisis. On the consumption side, Americans' growing familiarity with mahogany resulted from a tangled learning process of encountering, experiencing, and assimilating the new. Cabinet makers, merchants, and furniture buyers acted together, sometimes in overlapping roles, as makers, sellers, and consumers, to create a meaningful, meaningful value laden with central context for this novelty. Critical to the process was that its aesthetic qualities coincided with the 18th century Anglo concepts of beauty, gentility, refinement, and modernity, that most culturally literate people of the day appreciated mahogany objects thus became desirable status symbols among the social elite, whether they surmounted themselves with lavish furnishings or saved up for a hard-earned few. Colonial Americans sought out mahogany, from cradles to even coffins. Beginning in the 1760s, as mahogany began to be imported from more locales, craftsmen and their consumers developed preferences for the produce of specific places. Indicated by this proliferation of geographical monikers, although all still referred to one or the other as the same two species. West Indian mahogany was also called true mahogany, island wood, Jamaica wood. Provenance wood, after new provenance in the Bahamas, or later Cuban, Santo Domingan, or Spanish mahogany, after various French and Spanish islands. Honduran mahogany was called bay wood, after the Bay of Honduras, mosquito wood after the Mosquito Shore, or Ruritan mahogany after the land off the coast of Belize. This popular nomenclature, variations of which still are used today in trade terms by antique dealers, bespeaks the shifting geographical sources, actual or perceived, of the mahogany trade over the course of its convoluted history. As mahogany sources became more variable and unpredictable, however, such place name labels had more to do with marketing that catered to consumers' preconceptions that, with any objective reality-guarding 
regarding where wood was actually sourced. As preferred types ceased to be available, furniture makers and buyers alike had to modify their preferences and adapt to the shifting range of geographical options. Whereas Jamaican mahogany defined consumer standard of excellence in the 1720s, for examples, its declining quality and rapid depletion increasingly forced them to seek out the mahogany from other places, such as the Bay of Honduras, and they had previously spurned. By 1803, Thomas Sheraton, the famous English cabinet maker whose furniture design books circulated widely in the new United States, described Honduran wood as the principal kind of mahogany in the use amongst cabinet makers. Although surges in mahogany production periodically glutted the Atlantic marketplace, as new sources were found and made available, the overall long-term trend was toward greater scarcity as they were eventually tapped, and especially the West Indian species that has less abundant from the outset. While mahogany gained a reputation for its versatility for many utilitarian purposes, colonial Americans appreciated its aesthetic properties and as much or more. They seemed to respond to mahogany's look and feel as a visceral level. They were fascinated by its silky polished surfaces, deep saturated colors, and integrality figured grains. By rectifying mahogany as a superior to other materials, colonial Americans breathed new life into dead wood. Mahogany thus had a dual history, that of wild living organisms and of cultural artifacts. Once the mahogany trees were felled, people reinterpreted their carcasses first as a raw material, lumber, then as a commodity with exchange value, and ultimately as finished products to be owned, utilized, and displayed. The trees were no longer a flourishing part of nature, no longer mere wood like Marx's dancing table. Mahogany was transubstantiated through human effort into objects, useful, beautiful, and often status-laden objects, but completely disassociated from its organic origins. This stylin alchemy appeared deeply so, as so many Anglo-Americans precisely because it placed the wild, unfettered natural world at a safe remove or distance. Many people assume that mahogany has always been regarded as a luxury material, but its conception as such was very much a cultural construct. One among the many mutable meanings that have been applied to this material in the various points at that time. Depending on the historical context, mahogany has been regarded as utilitarian, cheap and abundant, precious, expensive and rare, desirable, sensual and exotic, respectable, refined and genteel, deceptive, duplicious and false, and nostalgic, elegant and reminiscent. So although colonial Americans initially consider mahogany remarkable, exciting, and refreshingly modern, by the mid-19th century, fashion-conscious people had come to regard it as a tiresomeless familiarity. Stodgingly and retardant, compared to that of rosewood and many other available specialty woods, while at the same time transitionists 
began to revere the, its antiquity and historical associations. Significant, significantly, these conf- conflicting re-envisionings of mahogany both began at the point of consumption, either in booming factories or in showy showroom emporiums or in the imagined hands of idealized independent artisans and virtuous American homes overlooking the contestation of vast slave-driven imperial network that brought tropical hardwoods to northern shares. Today, both mahogany species verge on extinction and are protected under the city's treaty throughout their native ranges within the American neotropics. While mahogany is commercially extinct within the Caribbean, it is still logged under heavy regulation in parts of Central and South America. Although illegal cutting persists throughout the Americas, commercial logging of both species is defunct, declining or strictly limited. Consequently, since the 20th century, mahogany has become a fetished commodity once again connoting substantial and luxury for many people in many ways in other once precious commodities simply do not exist. We are quick to toss used tea bags, coffee grounds, and banana peels on the compost heap, but old mahogany furniture more often ends up at auction houses, antique shops, and museums. While some people today still regularly use and enjoy mahogany objects, both antique and contemporary. For most of us, their high cost and limited availability have placed them largely outside of our daily realms into a bygone world of desire. On those rare occasions when we have the opportunity to examine and contemplate actual mahogany objects from the colonial period, perhaps spotlit in a museum gallery, behind a velvet rope at a historic site, or on a Sotheby's auction block, We may marvel at their beauty and craftsmanship, but perhaps not pause to ponder their rainforest origins, the consequences of their production, or what they meant to those who once yearned to possess them. Where colonial Americans once admired their shimmering reflections in deep the heart of the mahogany, we can still catch glimpses of ourselves mirrored in well-polished facades, But just as those perfect glancing facades conceal the raw, unfinished wood of objects, underbellies, hidden guts, and wall-facing posteriors, so too the mahogany trade had a decidedly less glamorous aspect. Nevertheless, its compelling history is one of transformation, creative and destructive, from its introduction in the early 18th century to its prominence from the mid to late 18th century, to its relative decline in the mid-19th century. While the benefits of the mahogany trade were great for some, if one considers the effects that its production had on many of the people and places where it originated, fulfilling consumers' desires for mahogany came at a high price. These connections bring together the, the polish and the rough that made the age of mahogany.